Welcome to episode 29 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Duane France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, you can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. Suicide prevention in general and military-related suicide prevention in particular is a complicated subject. We're trying to bring you a wide range of voices, including leaders who participated in the discussion about how to address suicide at the highest levels. In this case, the executive leadership of the Department of Defense. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest? Well, it's hard to summarize Rear Admiral Tony Curtis' career in a succinct way. His service includes over 32 years on active duty as a Navy surface warfare officer with command over active and reserve officers and enlisted Navy, Army, Marines, Air Force, Special Operations, National Guard, interagency, and coalition personnel. He retired from the Navy in 2013 as a Rear Admiral. In more recent service roles, he's been the Undersecretary and Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness in the DOD, where he influenced training, policy, and practices in suicide prevention. I asked him to share why the issue of service member suicide matters to him, and this is what he said. My first encounter with this topic was as a young Navy lieutenant when one of the more senior officers on our staff died by suicide. I was completely shocked by the event but even more shocked that nobody talked about it. Within the staff of about 40 of us, it was never addressed by leadership. There was no outreach to see if anyone else needed support. Fast forward 25 years and I'm in charge of the Navy's suicide prevention efforts. In the back of my mind, for each suggestion or initiative we thought to pursue, I would ask myself, would this have helped in the situation we faced in 1986? He said, it is a national disgrace and the lack of answers is shameful. I appreciate anyone who takes this kind of unflinching look at the problem. He shares some new perspectives on the use of data. Let's hear more. Yes, I really appreciate it. And I, as you were talking about it, I was thinking uh, this was happening in the 80s. And, and it was happening long before that. And it's still happening today. And so uh, I really appreciate Admiral Curta coming on the show. Let's get into the conversation and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. I'm interested in your point of view as a senior leader in the military, as an executive in the Department of Defense, you have been working on the issue of suicide in the military affiliated population for a number of years. From your perspective, what are some of the things that you think are, are helpful or beneficial when it comes to preventing suicide? Well, thank you for the question, Dwayne. And I, I do need to say at the beginning, how much I appreciate you conducting this series of podcasts and keeping the topic of military and veteran suicide forefront in the public's mind. It is so important. And as you've mentioned, I have been working in this field from a policy point of view as not a clinical provider for about the past 10 years or so. And it, I mean, once you start working in it, you get so involved with the importance of it and the effect on military readiness, the effect on our, our veteran population that it's hard not to just get seized with trying to find the answer. So I, I appreciate the spotlight you have shown on the problem and continue to uh, shine through the podcast. 
For the past 10 years, I think the biggest theme and, and what has, I say, in all of our minds, we think is helpful, is a focus on resiliency. And that is to build up, if you will, the defenses of everybody. Since we don't know exactly causes somebody to die by suicide, what in their mind is that last element that pushes them to die by suicide. We instead take the approach that it's better to build up all of the defenses, if you will. So build up your financial readiness, build up your social connectedness, build up your physical readiness, your spiritual health, all of those, your family situation, all of those is part of an idea that if you're stronger in all respects, when you face a challenge, you'll be better able to handle it. So that is a greater good I think it's hard to argue against that being something that we wouldn't want everybody to do and that it would certainly enhance military readiness. So I think that is particularly helpful. The public health approach is particularly helpful because I think that brings in all of those social determinants of, of health and we get beyond just a focus on mental health care, but the whole person health, which I think resiliency and the whole person health and the public health viewpoint all kind of fit together pretty well. I think one of my central themes is, while that is an inherent good, and I think it it works in one sense, I take a step back, again, from a policy point of view, and look back and say, 10 years ago, when we kind of started that focus on resiliency, both in the DOD and in the VA, and we take a step and we fast forward to today, and we see that we have the suicide rate in DOD and the VA, compared to the civilian population, has grown relatively worse, right? 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we kind of prided ourselves, if you will, because we didn't have any answers, but we said, hey, in the military, the VA, in the veteran population, our rate of suicide is lower than the general population. Today, we can't say that. In DOD, the rate is about equal to the U.S. population. Again, when you factor in age and gender, adjust for those. In the National Guard, the rate of suicide is higher than the corresponding civilian population. And in the VA, it is higher than the corresponding civilian population. So while I believe in the public health approach, while I believe in resiliency and all those programs, I, I can't escape the fact that the problem is getting relatively worse in our military and veteran population. You know, I appreciate that. I appreciate one, the distinction. When, when people talk about resiliency, uh, a lot of times people automatically go to mental toughness, right? How to, to weather negative things or to overcome this idea of resiliency is sort of a psychological concept, but you're talking about building strength in many areas of one's life, financial wellness, connectedness, employment, housing, all of these different things. And you say that, yes, it is much easier to not get into a, a suicidal crisis if you have stable employment, stable connections, stable housing, and things like that. So I really appreciate the identification of resiliency beyond the psychological concept of resilience and more to the whole health resilience, but also that we might not have gotten that message of whole resilience or, or entire self-resilience out to individuals that are trying to address some of those individual issues? Well, I suppose that's possible, although that the idea of the whole person health or the whole person resiliency to focus on more than just the mental aspects of psychological toughness, if you will, has been around for, uh, for a decade in the Navy. We called it a Sailor 2020 or Sailor 2021. I can't remember which one it was uh, at the point. And Army has uh, Soldier for Life. And all of those are kind of built around those whole person 
concepts. And, and part of it is because we don't know, again, what causes somebody to die by suicide, to take the decision to die by suicide. In, in some cases, it's a relationship gone bad and it's, it's very quick. In some cases, it's they've been under prolonged financial stress. In some cases, it could be a mental health issue. It, there's just so many things on an individual basis that could cause somebody to make that decision that the only way to combat the entire problem is to combat each element of that resiliency and build up everybody on all of those fronts. So again, the challenges that come at military service members, their families, and veterans come from all angles of society. So you kind of have to build a 360-degree wall of resiliency, and that encompasses all those various areas that you talked about. I wonder from a a strategic and a a policy perspective, from your point of view and the work that you've done over the last 10 years, is some of it the fact that the people that are helping build those different areas, such as employment, such as relationships, such as housing and things like that, that maybe they're not certain that what they're doing is also suicide prevention, that they're just trying to help veterans get jobs or they're trying to get veterans housed and maybe not thinking that I'm also preventing suicide. Well, I think you you have a definite point there because we don't really link the on-base housing office or the assistance that the Veterans Administration provides to homeless veterans. We don't always think of that as a suicide prevention measure, but no, no doubt that it is. And I never want to miss an opportunity to declare how proud and thankful I am for all the people in the Department of Defense, Veterans Affairs, out in civilian life who are taking their time to provide attention to this problem, to help our veterans, to help our military members, to help their families, whether it's in financial education, whether it's mental health provision, whether it's in housing, whether it's in education. Because as you said, all of those do contribute to the suicide prevention efforts in the public health realm. And we probably need to all do a better job in recognizing them and ensure that they know that they're contributing to the solution of this problem. In as complex an organization as the Navy itself and then the DOD and then your your work after your public service, there's a lot of information out there. And you've mentioned before we started talking, it's somehow getting big data involved in suicide prevention or or even identifying some of these markers. We've had a couple of other guests that say the information is all out there. We know when people are going through foreclosure, we know when people are justice involved, but somehow we've not really gotten our hands around how to use all the data that's out there in a beneficial way to keep somebody from either getting into or addressing when someone is in a suicidal crisis. Well, that's a great point. And I've I said for years, particularly when I was a senior executive in DOD, that the DOD, I think the Department of Defense probably has more data on its people than any other organization likely in the world. And yet I think, and I I say we, from my, my former position, we probably use it to the least effect. And there's a number, I think, of reasons for that. One is the department has a very, very strong adherence to the culture and the laws regarding privacy. Another is the way that the Department of Defense kind of handles data. And that's whoever creates the piece of data kind of owns it and is responsible for its use and the outcome of its use if they lend that data to somebody else. Our former Vice Chief of Naval Operations, a classmate of mine, Admiral Bill Moran, called it 
digital hoarding. And it was a phrase that was wonderful only because it really captured one of the problems in the Department of Defense. If you have a piece of data that I need to use and you give it to me and I'm a little bit careless with it and the data is released when it should not be, yes, I'm at fault, but so are you. Well, that type of kind of perverse incentive, if you will, causes people to hoard their digital data and and not be willing to, to share it. So I think it requires, and the VA is better than the DOD at this in using their data to try to get after solutions and and analytics. But I think what I am advocating for is kind of a, a more radical approach to the issue of privacy. And it, it's everything with big data is kind of the balancing of privacy versus the perceived effects that you would get out of using data for purposes that it may not have been initially collected for. And so we have to get around the data usage agreements. We have to get around the HIPAA privacy considerations. We have to get around the system of record notices. All of that are the obstacles to using big data. And you have to look at privacy in a different way. So we have, depending on who you believe, 17 or 20 or 22 veterans die by suicide every day. In the DOD, in calendar year 2018, I think it was 541 deaths by suicide, 186 in the spouse and families. That was from DOD's annual suicide report in 2018, which is just a document. 10 years ago, the rate of suicide in the DOD and the VA was less than the corresponding rate in the U.S. civilian population. Today, no longer the case. So the problem is getting relatively worse. The banner that we always hear is the 20 veterans dying by suicide every day. Well, we've lived with that for almost a decade now, and the problem Mm -hmm. is getting worse. So the question in my mind is, is it time to kind of look at that scale between privacy and what we need to do to reduce the military and veteran suicide rate and maybe balance it just a little bit more in favor of coming up with a solution that will have a market effect on the suicide rate. And I think the way to get after that is by using big data in a way that we haven't before. The Army has made some great attempts at doing this, but I think they used primarily medical record data. And the medical record data is part of what you have to use. But I think it's kind of like a a, a mixing bowl. You have to put a lot of ingredients in there. And we need to put the medical data, no doubt. We need to put in the personnel record data that DMDC has, a lot of valuable information on our military members is in that data source. We have to look at financial data, might give us indications of financial stress. We have to look at what is commonly called social media scraping and really look at what people are saying in the chat rooms on the websites, the keywords. We have to look at the law enforcement data that might give us indications of relationship issues. We have to look where people are spending their money. Are they buying firearms when they've never had a firearm purchase before? What articles, magazines, if people are still reading magazines these days. Each one of those has been used kind of on an individual scale. But if you put those all together, you have literally thousands of fields of data on people. And yes, you have to kind of de-identify those and all of that is technically feasible, but you really have to use the data analytics that exist today on a database that is large enough to maybe give you a different answer, to find those patterns when people are at risk. Because the last 10, 15 years of studying individual suicide events I I call it the bottom-up approach. We take a suicide event and we dissect it 
in as many ways as possible to try to find out, is there any pattern? And that bottom-up approach, as I said, has just not worked over the last decade. Again, I admire everybody that is working in this field. It is tough, but we have to realize the trend is in the wrong directions. You have to do something different. So let's try that top-down approach. Let's rebalance our views on privacy a little bit. Let's put all of this into the mixing bowl and see if there's an answer. See if there's a sign of, of when we can tell somebody is at higher risk so we can get them into the type of care that may provide an answer before they make a decision to die by suicide. That's uh, It's very interesting. I'm thinking of if I, as a, a first sergeant or a first line leader or something, and I had a service member who was at imminent risk of taking their own life, I wouldn't be concerned about their privacy, whether or not you want me in your life, right? I'm going to be in your life to save your life. But right. then that idea of different data systems knowing what's going on. Yes, the health records is one aspect of it, but the provost marshal's office that was just called to the service members on base housing knows a piece of it. The finance office who knows that they've just got a no pay due, the first sergeant who knows that they just got reduced in rank, and the chaplain who knows that that individual is going through marriage difficulties. All five of those different people have a piece of the puzzle, but if you add all them together, well, of course, that individual is not doing well and we need to do something. You're exactly right. And that leads me to kind of look at the fact that the resiliency programs over the last 10 years, again, I think they are spot on and there's something that we have to do. There's inherent goodness in building up people's and family unit resiliency. But we kind of talk, one of those elements of resiliency is your social connectedness. And I I think based on my experience, and I, you, you would probably, I think, say the same thing. The military, the Department of Defense, probably has the largest social connectedness just about any organization in our country. And I would say the social safety net is as strong and active as it is anywhere in the country. When you're out working for the mom and pop store across the street, you don't have a first sergeant who's in your business all day long making sure that you've paid your bills and making sure that you're not getting taken advantage of on the car loan from a vendor down the street, all those sorts of things. So that the social fabric of the military is, is so strong. And if that resiliency in that, in that realm and that social connectedness were the answer to the suicide problem, then I don't think we would see the DOD and the veteran population getting relatively worse with respect to the counterparts in the civilian world. So I can't explain what we're seeing on the big needle movements of the problem getting worse when the things that we are doing and concentrating on are inherently good. So to me, that's what makes me kind of take a step back and says, okay, we have to do something that is completely different, something that is radical. There will be a lot of people that say this is way too much on the big brother end of the scale. And I acknowledge that, but Big problems require bold solutions. This is a big problem. It's been this way for 10 years. It's not getting better. You have to do, we all have to do something radically different. And I so much appreciate you keeping this in the forefront and spotlighting the problem because we, we have to build an emphasis in people's mind that we can't just keep doing what we've been doing. It just is not working. I, I absolutely agree. My colleagues in my local community probably get tired of hearing the military metaphors, but I describe it as using intelligence that's two years old to fight battles that are happening today. The 
flip side of that is if we're still doing the same thing in 2020 that we were doing in 2018, we're going to get 2018 numbers in 2020, unless, as you said, we do something radically different. And hopefully just accumulating this information and all of these different points of view is is part of it. Admiral Kurt, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing with us today. Well, thank you, Dwayne. It has been my pleasure. This is such an important topic. It is something that just has motivated me for the last 10 years. Again, I appreciate what you and your colleagues do to keep this in the limelight. I appreciate everybody in the Veterans Administration, in the DOD that are working on this problem, those in the civilian space that are working on this problem. It is a crisis. We can't accept the status quo as is. Otherwise, in 10 years, we're going to be in a, in a worse position. So we have to do something different. And I appreciate you providing an avenue for me to speak about this. Absolutely. I was really grateful that Admiral Curto was able to join us to talk about addressing suicide from a policy perspective, especially given his leadership in the Department of Defense. Yeah, it was so refreshing to hear someone openly acknowledge that data hoarding is a real thing and that it impedes our progress. I always thought this was about people holding knowledge as power and using it to position themselves most favorably for financial grants. What I didn't appreciate that absolutely now makes sense to me is the idea that fear may play a strong role in this unhelpful behavior. If a person or organization that collects data can be held accountable for the way that even de-identified data is used, this would absolutely propel data collecting orgs to play it safe and keep a hold of their data. Might there be a creative way to appoint a board of behavioral ethicists who could provide guidance to any individual or organization who uses someone's data and hold accountable these people and entities rather than those who first collected the data? The same as you, we know that the reason why people want to keep their numbers is because these are our numbers, right? These are our people. We're thinking about post-military, of course, and, and as you said, for funding or for grants or things like that. But yes, in the military, when you can be held responsible for something that you didn't even do or were even aware of, but you can be held responsible for it. When it comes to somebody using the data that you collected in an irresponsible way, I could see where there's a little bit of hesitation around that. Absolutely. That seems like a solvable problem, though. If we could come together around what is the purpose of this data, de-identified data, to help us all learn, it goes back to a kind of concept that we don't, as providers, as healers, we don't own our patients. We try to do the best we can for them. And when we need to bring in a team approach, that's what we should do to get the best outcomes. The second thing I wanted to pull out is that Mr. Carter makes a very valid point when he says there are many different reasons why people die by suicide. For example, as he says, some individuals may be under long financial stress, or in some but not all cases, there may be a mental health challenge, while for others, crisis can build to a head quickly after a relationship breakup. This creates issues with predictive modeling of risk because there are so many different sources and trajectories. In my work, I found it helpful to think about what is common across these sources, which is the state of mind that people enter when they are on the ropes with their demons. It's a state of profound disconnection from those they love. They feel that they are beyond the reach of hope, 
and that they have become persuaded in this altered state of consciousness that their death is a logical, maybe even generous decision. I don't consider myself an expert on the psychology of all suicide, and anyone who claims they are would actually raise a red flag for me. But I do think that there are some very common repeated themes in many of the suicides that happen within the tribe of those who serve in the military. The story of why they die by suicide is different in some fundamental ways. And for many of them, understanding this psychology gives us insight into what has stopping power, even when they're fully bent on self-destruction. This is what I unpack in my book, Warrior. For those who have integrated a warrior identity, the most critical insight, if we want to get traction for this population, is this. The people and sacred values that a warrior would give his or her life for in combat are the same things that have stopping power when that person is assaulted by the voice of despair. This insight has proven to be true in my work with countless warriors. And this insight gives me hope that we can get traction and reverse the trend of losing our warriors to deaths of despair. I agree. This is the idea of we need to get away from a one-size-fits-all approach, right? We don't have one spaghetti sauce. We have 15 different spaghetti. They're all spaghetti sauce, but there's chunky and basil and all this other stuff. I mean, so in our consumer habits, we have a wide variety of different things to solve the problem of what do I want to have with my spaghetti? And unfortunately, whenever we come to suicide, people seem to want to think that, well, all we need to do is throw spaghetti sauce at it or, or this solution, but it's really a mix of all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely needs to be a culturally specific, group specific understanding the warrior psychology is different than understanding the psychology of a different group. And so I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I think this is, again, something that is emerging out of this tailoring interventions to the individual and in, in providing a wide range of interventions, understanding that, yes, we have to help people decide between 15 different type of interventions, but having a wide range of interventions as opposed to a single one seems to be one of the things that's getting us towards addressing this issue. So we really appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS29. There you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.